She was really in a hard situation, wasn't she? But she came to a good place. She came to the man of God, the Bible says, the prophet. And he asked her a question, what do you have in the house? Well, she said, I have nothing but uh, a little oil in a vessel. That's all I had. Well, he said, I tell you what you do. You go back to your house and go to the neighbors and borrow pots and pans and kettles and vessels of various kinds. And she did. Now he said, you go in there and you start pouring oil out of that vessel, that one vessel of oil you had. And you remember what happened? How many vessels got filled? Every one she had, is that right? And then she asked the prophet what to do, and he said, you go sell that oil now and pay your debts and live on the rest. And it worked. I've often wondered if when it was all over, she wished that she'd borrowed more pots and pans. Well, how much are you expecting tonight? The great law of blessing is laid down. In the Savior's words, according to your faith, be it unto you. Personally, friends, I've asked the Lord tonight for the biggest blessing of my life. Oh, I want it. I want you to have it. I want everyone here to have a big blessing because we need it. We're almost home, but we're not almost ready. And so I pray that tonight God will greatly bless us as we look into the Word and with the help of the Spirit see what great things God is ready and willing to do. The text is the 17th chapter of John. John 17. We're told by inspiration that this chapter, the 17th chapter of John, comprehends more and includes more than any other chapter in the New Testament. We're also told that we're to make this prayer our first study. So we're going to study it tonight. We've looked at it some before, haven't we? But somehow in recent days, as I've been looking into it more, I see some things in it more than I've ever have seen before. I want to share them with you. You remember that this 17th of John is taken up entirely with our Lord's prayer just before he went into Gethsemane. He had met with his disciples in the upper room. They had celebrated the Passover. He had inaugurated the sacramental supper by which they were to commemorate his sacrifice for them through the coming years until he should come. And he had talked with them, those wonderful things that we read in John 14, 15, 16. And now he comes, he's almost to the garden, and he pauses. And there under the bright moonlight, he kneels, surrounded by the eleven, and praise these wonderful words. Father, the hour is come. 
Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. And they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Through thy truth, thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them 
as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovedst me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me, and I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. I want to call your attention tonight in this wonderful prayer to four thoughts. There are more, of course, than the four. But four thoughts that were in the heart of Christ as he poured out this prayer for his disciples. The first, which of course I'm sure each one here tonight has been impressed anew with as we've read this, is his prayer for unity, for union. He prayed that his church might be one. One. He prayed that his disciples might share a union such as he and his father had shared from eternity. What a wonderful prayer to pray. And you notice it was not alone for those disciples who were with him that night. For in the 20th verse, he prays for us, those who would believe on him through their word and on down that they all, 21st verse, may be one. So the heart of Jesus is set on his disciples being one. And he speaks throughout the prayer of the love, which makes that possible. It's the love between the Father and the Son that is the basis of their unity. It's the love of Jesus in our hearts that will enable us to love one another as he has loved us and to be as closely united as the Father and the Son are united. Now, with this prayer for unity, there is a prayer for separation. With this teaching of unity, there is a teaching of separation. I think we'll just put that down here so we'll have it to look at. It may seem strange that in the same prayer would be the thought of unity and the thought of separation. But these are two sides of the same coin, my dear friends. If we are to be in union with Jesus, we must experience separation from the world. And so you notice, he says twice in this 17th chapter, 16th verse, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. The 14th verse, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So how separated from the world are we to be? How? as completely as Jesus was. There is to be no more union between us and this wicked world than there was between Jesus 
and the wicked world that crucified him. They, my children, my disciples, my church, they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Twice I say, he says it there. Three verses. Now notice the verse in between that twice repeated statement, 15th verse. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest what? Keep them from the evil. There are those who would be so thankful if Jesus would just take them to heaven right away so they wouldn't be tempted anymore. And uh, if they can't get to heaven, they'd like to find some place where there are no temptations. No problems. Well, Jesus didn't pray that you and I would be that separated from the world. Not in that way. I pray not, he says to his father, that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest what? Keep them from the evil. Someone has very aptly said, speaking on this point, that it's like a boat on the water ship, you know, on the ocean. It's all right for the vessel to be in the ocean, on the water, as long as the water doesn't get in the boat. Is that right? But suppose the water starts seeping in the boat. Then what? Then instead of it being a place of safety, it's a place of what? Of disaster, of death. Yeah. That's happened down through the ages again and again. And you know in the old days, the sailing vessels, if a leak was discovered at once, men were put to work pumping. What for? Keep that water from rising in there. They tried to repair it if they could. But if they couldn't, they'd just keep pumping away there. Their lives were at stake. But, ah, oh, my dear friends, how God and angels must weep to see the complacency with which we see the world seeping in, seeping in, seeping in, and very little done about it. To the pumps, brethren, to the pumps. Oh, that God may help us to keep afloat in this sea, this wicked sea, of lawlessness with which we are surrounded. And there's no way to get completely out of this world until Jesus comes and takes us in that wonderful space trip. But mark you, that does not lessen in any way our responsibility or Jesus' desire that we shall be kept from contamination that we shall be saved from the evil of this world. And so his great prayer is, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Is this world evil? Yes. Oh, it's not so bad. Oh, isn't it? That's the question, my dear friend. Is the world bad or is it? Is it a rattlesnake, or is it just something that looks like it? Is it a tiger, a lion that bites, 
Or is it just a big overgrown cat and if you rub it right it won't hurt you very much? Which is it? That's the question. How do you feel toward the word? Are you afraid of it? Do you hate it? I don't mean the poor people. God pity them. We've come to that presently. But what about the spirit of this world? Let me tell you, friends. From some aspects, this world thinks that it's making a very good record for itself at the present time. It's a fact that never in the history of this country did so many people have it so good, as they say, as to have it right for the present time. And people look at all these wonderful inventions, they think, my, men are really doing things. Are you enamored of all that? Are you caught up with the spirit of admiration of human progress, human pride, human wisdom, human knowledge? Oh, friends, be careful. Jesus prayed that you and I might be kept from this wicked world. And he said twice that we are not of the world any more than he was of the world. No. Did he fit in with the world of his time? Three and a half years was all they could stand in his public work. They nailed him to a cross. If he'd come back today, they'd do it over again. How does it come that some of us have such an easy time getting along with the world? Well, we've learned how to have better public relations than Jesus had, haven't we? Yes, we have. God pity us, friends. God pity us. Oh, that we may help to answer this prayer of Jesus, that we may no more be a part of this world than he was, my friends. That we shall be alert, alert, ready to flee, from this and that and the other thing, instead of being drawn to stare and to admire what's going on in this world. If the spirit of Jesus is in our hearts, friends, what's going on in this world will not attract us. Do you remember that dream of those who were traveling the narrow way? How as they traveled in the path got higher and steeper and rougher and narrower. Occasionally they heard sounds. Where'd they come from? From the abyss below. What's that? The world. It says we heard the dance song and the war song and the sounds of revelry and mirth. And oh, we thought, wouldn't it be nice if we could get a, a loudspeaker so we could hear it better? Is that what it said? Oh, no. Did it say, oh, we wish that there was a quick trail that we could get down there and spend Saturday night down there occasionally? Is that what it said? No. no. Oh, it says we shuddered. And we were more anxious than ever to keep on the path. Oh, friends, how do the sights and sounds of this world affect you? How do they affect you? That's the question. Well, I can tell you this. You'll give some evidence in the way you look and act and talk yourself. Imitation is the sincerest compliment that you can give anybody, isn't it? 
Yeah. And when you try to act like the world, you certainly compliment it. And when you try to look like the world, as close as you can, and still retain the Christian name, certainly, friends, you give the world quite a bit of flattery. Oh, that God may help us to see what Jesus is praying about here, that we may be as separate from the world as he was. And when we are, he says, we'll be hated just as he was hated. Hated, that's not a, a mild word. Hated. But ah, you notice he prays that we may be sanctified. That word means set what? Apart. That's separation. That's why we keep the Sabbath. It's a sign of being set apart. You know, some people are so sorry that everybody doesn't keep Saturday because it would be so much easier then, indeed. It's too bad that everybody doesn't love God and obey. But really, my dear friends, if you think it through, it's a fortunate thing that the enemy has another flag so there's no confusion over the matter. It's a fortunate thing that the flag of God stands to identify those who are willing to be what? Separated, different, peculiar. But is it merely in the keeping of the seventh-day Sabbath that God's children are different? Oh, he says, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. All right. Now the third thing I want you to know. While we are in the world, there is a purpose for our being in it. It isn't to be like it, it's to be separate. And yet, we're not here as hermits, as monks or nuns. What are we here for? Ah, he tells us in this 18th verse, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. How did Jesus happen to come here? Did he come here to have a good time? Did he come here to get rich in real estate? Come here to make a great name for himself? How did he happen to come here anyway? Oh, God so loved the world that he, he gave his only begotten son to save us. He came, my dear friends, on a mission. He was saint. He came on an errand. That's all he did the whole time he was here. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life. That's all he did the whole time. As soon as he got it done, he went back. Now he says, I have gotten some men out of the world, Father, that you gave me, and I'm sending them into the world just as you sent me into the world. Oh, did you know that you'd been commissioned? Or have you? Have you? That's the question. That's the question. Oh, I hope you have for it. I hope you have accepted the mission. Jesus came with a mission, and he has sent his followers on a mission. And his prayer is 
that we shall succeed in our mission as he succeeded in his mission. What do you say? Are you on that mission? Is that what you have to live for? Anything else? Well, if you have anything else to live for, friends, you'll miss this. This is all or nothing. This calls for everything. It takes everything. And the reason we're still in this world is because so many of God's dear children are fiddling around with a hundred different things and trying to do this on the side. Someday, somewhere, sometime, my friends, God's children are going to get as burdened about this as Jesus was. They're going to answer this prayer, this prayer of Jesus. And their whole life and time will be devoted to doing just what Jesus did. Oh, it cost something. It cost him everything. He was rich, but he became poor. He was king of the universe, but he emptied himself, became a servant. He walked around through Galilee and Judea, a homeless wanderer, reproach and penury his daily lot. He had what would be called a hard time and very discouraging experiences. But my dear friends, he made it possible for every soul to be saved that ever will be saved in the kingdom. It was all made possible in those 33 years by his life and death. I say it was a grand success. What do you say? Well, now he's invited you and me to go on a similar mission. We can't save as many as he saved. And all we have any part in saving, it'll be his power, his love that does the work. But he's invited us to have our hands used by him and our voices used by him. It's a wonderful privilege, isn't it, friend? What do you say we do it? What do you say we take him seriously on this? What do you say that like Peter and John and Matthew, we put all we have into this one work of winning souls to Christ? What do you say? Oh, heaven is waiting to demonstrate what can be done. But ah, so many human problems intervene. So many human problems. So many are like that man that Jesus called. And he said, yes, Lord, I'll come, but oh, I've got so many things to fix up at home. I've got to bury my father. Father wasn't even sick yet, let alone dead. But he said, I've got to stay at home and take care of things there. And then I'll come. And another one you remember that Jesus called and he said, yes, Lord, I'll come, but first let me go and bid farewell to those that are at my house. And you remember what Jesus said? No man having put his hand to the plow and turning, looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. There is something about all our dedication that Jesus is calling for that very few people know anything about. They suppose that this is something that's like a hobby like collecting stamps or collecting rocks. You can kind of do it, you know, in your spare time. Well, some people work at it that way. But we'll be around here another 120 years, friends, on that program. Someday, I repeat, sometime, this burden, this mission that gripped the heart of Jesus is going to grip the hearts of his sincere children 
and they're going to do just what Jesus did. They're going to finish the work. It'll take the spirit and power that rested upon Jesus to accomplish it. But all heaven is waiting, just anxious, to pour it out. But it's got to have some vessels, empty vessels, clean vessels, and vessels that aren't filled up with a lot of other good things you understand. Really, really. If Jesus should invite you to share with him in just such a life as he invited his disciples to share nearly 2,000 years ago, would you take him seriously? Would you? Or would you say, well, Lord, there are certain things that I'll have to, I'll have to see that they're taken care of first. There are certain things that you need to guarantee. What did Jesus guarantee Matthew and Peter? Thomas. What did he guarantee them? He guaranteed them nothing but the joy of service with him and the assurance that they'd have tribulation and persecution. They got both. They got the joy. They got the trouble. Both are waiting for us if we'll enter in. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. Oh, let's accept the mission. What do you say for it? All right. Now, I said I wanted to give you four thoughts tonight from Jesus' prayer. The first is union. Union with Jesus and one, one another. And the second is what? Separation from what? From the world. And the third is mission. Mission to what? To the world. And those two things are not contradictory. They're complementary. They belong together. They work together just fine. In fact, unless you're separate from the world, you have no real mission to the world. But now number four. And this is sweet and precious. The 13th verse. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy, my joy, fulfilled in themselves. Oh, yes. That's this fourth. Joy. Joy. What's another word for it? Happiness. happiness. Do you like happiness? Yeah. Oh, yes, somebody says that's what I'm hunting for all the time. That's your trouble. You won't find it that way. Happiness doesn't come that way. In fact, God has fixed it, so you can't find it that way. Volume 4, page 224. God in his providence has willed that no one can secure happiness by living for himself alone. Can do it. The man that's called the greatest man of the century died a few days ago, and you know what his last words were? I am bored with it all. Those weren't Paul's last words, nor Stephen's last words. No, no. Thank God they had something to live for and something worth dying for and a hope beyond that reaches through the eternal ages. Jesus, if we'll help him answer his prayer, we'll see to it that we have joy. Full. Full. 
He says, I want my joy fulfilled in them. I want them to be full of joy. And you say, I don't see how anybody could be happy, real happy, that had to be separate from all the marvelous things in this world and then had to spend his life in sacrificial service. No. No, you don't see that. Unless you're born again. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, 3. That's the truth. You look at a fish out here in the water. You talk to him about the wonderful times that some people at least have. And how nice it is to get out here and go over these fields and up these trails and find these beautiful flowers. He'd say, not for me. I couldn't take it. And he couldn't. The poor fish is he got to stay right where he is in that water, hadn't he? Well, I'm so glad I don't have to get where he is. What do you say? Wouldn't do for me. Which world do we belong to, my dear friends? The upper world or the lower world? Jesus has a joy that he wants to share with us, and that's what this prayer is about. You remember in Matthew 25 in the parable of the talents that each one of those who was faithful when the day of reckoning came was invited by the master. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into what? The joy of thy Lord. You know what the joy of the Lord is? If you want something interesting, look up the comments in the spirit of prophecy on that text. You find that over and over and over again, the statement is given us that the joy of the Lord is in seeing souls redeemed. That's what led him on this mission. That's what caused him to leave the throne and come to the stable and to the cross. The joy of seeing souls redeemed. He loved people so much that it just made him happy to do things for them in the hope of getting them to come with him back to the Father's house. He had the joy that shepherd had in going out and finding the sheep, bringing it home on his shoulders. How? Rejoicing. Sure. Now he says, I want you to share this with me. I'm sharing my mission with you. I want to share my joy with you. See here in John, the 15th chapter, that same night he was talking to those same disciples, 11th verse. John 15, 11, These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be what? Full. Just let me run through a few of the many wonderful statements on this, of what this joy of the Lord is. Great Controversy 647. This is talking about when we make this wonderful trip through space up to the Father's throne. With unutterable love, Jesus welcomes his faithful ones to the joy of their Lord. The Savior's joy is in seeing in the kingdom of glory the souls that have been saved by his agony and humiliation. And the redeemed, watch it, and the redeemed will be sharers in his joy. 
as they behold among the blessed those who have been won to Christ through their prayers, their labors, and their loving sacrifice. Won't it be a wonderful joy, Fred? Yes. Somebody you went to see. Somebody you gave treatments to in the sanitarium. Somebody that you wrote a letter to. Somebody you sacrificed for. Somebody you prayed for. Day after day, week after week, month after month, perhaps year after year. And they're there forever to enjoy eternity. Ah, oh, friends, that's entering into the joy of the Lord. But now watch. Oh, catch this wonderful statement here in Ministry of Healing, page 504. This joy all his followers are to share. However great and glorious hereafter, our reward is not all to be reserved for the time of final deliverance. Even here we are by faith to enter into the Savior's joy. Why, yes, friends, we can have cups full, gallons of it, barrels of it right here in this world. The joy of sharing with Jesus in his mission and in the thanksgiving that comes as we see souls responding to our united efforts. As Jesus and I work together, there's joy again and again. Oh, sometimes tears, sure. Heartbreaks as souls turn away. But joy as somebody responds and comes into the circle of love. Say, friend, this is the real purpose of life. This is it. This is what Jesus was praying for. Are you in on it? Well, if you're not, no wonder you sometimes are restless. No wonder if sometimes you feel tempted to taste what Sodom has and what Babylon has and what Hollywood has. No wonder, friend. It's no wonder if sometimes it's hard to resist those temptations. But I want to tell you something. Those who have entered into this program that Jesus sets out here, of separation from the world, a mission of sacrificial service to the world, and the joy of Christ in the heart. Oh, the world looks mighty sick and pale to me. They feel sorry for the world, not contempt, just sorrow, pity, love, but desire to get in there and share in that muck and filth? Oh, no. Just a longing desire to pull somebody out. Pull somebody out. Oh, I ask again, friends, where are we in our thinking? You know, about 4,000 years ago now, there was a man named Abram that lived in a great city down in the valley of the Euphrates. Ur had a wonderful civilization. The archaeologists that have dug down there, they've discovered some things that people think today are very modern. They were back there in Ur 4,000 years ago. Ur was a highly civilized city. But one day God said to Abram, what? Come out. Come out, Abram. 
Where am I going, Lord? Well, by and by you'll find out. And when Abram got to the end of his journey, you know where he was? Well, he was under some oak trees over there in Canaan. Now here, now there, living in tents, tabernacles, Hebrews 11 calls. And if any of his old friends ever got over there and saw him, I suppose they thought, what a life. What do you do when it rains, Abraham? What do you do when it gets hot? And uh, what are you building for yourself? They could have asked him a lot of questions. But I want to tell you something, friends. When you look into the records, Abraham was happy. He had accepted this principle of separation. He was on a mission, and he was entering into the joy of the Lord. Do you know how many souls he won? At least a thousand. More than that. There were more than that that had accepted the message that he bore at various places that gathered together in his encampment to learn more of the way of life than he was teaching them. You're acquainted with that program, aren't you? Yes. Did it work? Oh, yes. Now there was a relative of Abraham's, and he decided on a different program. He, he wasn't quite so impressed with this separation principle. You remember where he moved? Where? Oh, no. Oh, no. He didn't move into Sodom. He pitched his tent, what? Toward Sodom. He pitched his what? His tent. But you see him a bit later, and he has, he's advanced. No more tent business for him and his family. They've gone modern. The idea living in tents. Why, my father can afford something better than that. If he can't, he better get a move on him. Because we've got to keep up with the bright young folks down there in where? Sodom. So finally they move in. Did Lot make a success down there? Well, he became one of the judges. He sat in the gate. And his daughters, most of them married well as the Sodomites thought. But how many converts did Lot get ready for the kingdom of God, my dear friend? How many? Not one. And when the angels of God went down there with the word of the heavenly Father that if they could find even ten righteous people in that city, they'd spare it for Abraham's sake, they couldn't find even ten in that great metropolis. And yet Lot was a righteous man, the Bible says. And he vexed his righteous soul from day to day with the filthy conversation of the wicked. But oh, he allowed his family to carry him toward Sodom and into Sodom. What did they want down there? They wanted the sights of Sodom, the sounds of Sodom, the styles of Sodom, and they got them. Oh, my dear friend. Which way are we going? Imagine it if you can. Do you suppose that any of those relatives of Abraham and Sarah ever went back to Mamre or those other places to visit Abraham? It could be. And those children of Lot, I wonder how they felt when they got out there. 
Can you see them turn up their nose at the children in the camp out there at Abraham? Uncle Abraham, boy, my, what a back number he is. I'm so glad we don't have to live out there in that dump. Nothing to see, no place to go, and no place to fix up our hair like we do down in Sodom. How in the world do you stand it, youngsters? My dear friends, are we going toward Sodom or away from Sodom? Do we like the way this world does? Do we want to look like Sodom? Oh, not so bad. Oh, no, we wouldn't want to look so bad. We just want to look half that way. Half that way. Oh, no, it's not to smile, it's to weep. Between the porch and the altar saying, Spare thy people. These are some of the reasons that no latter rain falls, my friends. These are some of the reasons that Jesus still tarries. While the bridegroom tarries, so many slumber and sleep. God help us to arouse and awake. Get on Abraham's program instead of Lot's. What do you say? What do you say, friends? Do you think things were different out at the camp at Abraham than they were down in Lot's house in Sodom? What do you think? Do you think the young people looked different out under the oaks at Mamre than they did down in, in Sodom? What do you think? What do you think? Do you think they had a different way of enjoying themselves? A different way of looking and acting and talking? I thank God, friends, for every young person that knows what I'm talking about here tonight and is happy in it. And I just wish everybody did. And you can. And I invite you. And I assure you, my dear friends, it's not living in a penitentiary. Oh, no. Sodom's the penitentiary. Sodom is the penitentiary. And these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And the joy of the Lord is not in keeping up with the Joneses, my friends. Speaking of keeping up with the Joneses in this matter of separation from the world, just a word or two on this matter of money. I've been impressed that the Lord is impressing our leaders to come out with some very strong and clear things in the review on this question. Did you notice this editorial in the review of February 4 by Elder Nickel, the trend toward luxuries? Did you see his warning to Seventh-day Adventists not to be caught in this mania for gadgets? Read it, friend. Review of February 4. He tells here about one of the well-known makers of automatic washing machines for the home is now offering a device costing $25 that automatically switches off the dryer when the clothes are dry. The Wall Street Journal well observes that the item would hardly be termed a necessity. We agree. Read the whole article. Well, you say, Brother Vizzi, what's that about? Why, my, I've got a number of gadgets that cost more than $25. Read the article. You know, it's so easy for the signs of the times to be fulfilling all around us, and we help fulfill them and don't know what's going on. 
Then take a more recent article, the review of March 18. That's this week's review. Here's an article on buying on the installment plan by Elder Kozell, the assistant treasurer of the General Conference. It's labeled a timely problem for Seventh-day Adventists to ponder. You say, what's that got to do with the church and with the members of the church? Well, read it, Fred. Get the warning. Do you know that the great majority of people in this world are bound hand and foot with this installment buying? And if something serious would happen either in the nation or in their personal lives, the bottom would indeed drop out of their finances. They'd either have to go into bankruptcy or be, you might say, slaves. They're slaves already. Not long ago, a banker told me about a man coming in and wanted to borrow some money, make time payments on it. When the banker sat down with him, he had to show him that he was already committed for everything in his paycheck. Every dollar was spent before he got it, and there he wanted to borrow some more money. You say, well, everybody does it. Not quite, my dear friends. Abraham doesn't do it. That's the way Sodom is wrong, but that's not the way Mamre is wrong. And if you are not, if you don't have an alive and alert conscience on that point, on the bondage of debt on the one hand, and the sin of extravagance, if you can afford it or can't afford it, either one, the sin of extravagance, read these two articles, where our church leaders have unburdened their hearts for us. This is just one more facet of this question of whether we're going to be separate from the world and give our lives to the mission of finishing the work or whether we're going to go on like Lot, wishing things were different, but seeing ourselves and our families carried a little more, a little more, a little more toward the world. God help us. God pity us. What do you say for it? Now, I want to ask you something. Is this prayer going to be answered? Yes, it's going to be answered. Every detail of it's going to be answered because it's written. And in closing, I bring you some wonderful promises. Testimonies to Ministers, page 50. The prayer of Christ will finally be answered. The prayer of Christ that his church may be one as he was one with his father will finally be answered. What do you say? Isn't that encouraging? Oh, yeah. Here's another one. This from the Bible that tells us the same thing. Ephesians, the fifth chapter. It's going to happen. Beginning with the 25th verse. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a what? Glorious. Glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Is it going to happen, friend? What do you say? Oh, yes. Yes. 
there's going to be a unity of the church such as the world has never yet seen. Pentecost came as close to it as any time in the past. But Pentecost is going to be repeated on a grander scale <laughs> with a union closer than the early church ever experienced. And friends, on this matter of separation, is God going to have a church at last that is sick of the world and is going to have nothing more to do with its worldliness and pride and folly, whether in dress or amusements or extravagance or education or anything else? Is he? Oh, yeah. Look at this. Great Controversy 6, pardon me, Great Controversy 464. Before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, there will be, oh, mark the certainty of it, there will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. Will it happen? Oh, it's coming. It's on the way for it. And you and I can share it. But I'll tell you, we'll never get there going one mile north and then two miles south. Then two miles north and three miles south. We'll never get it there. We'll have to decide which way we're going and put all we have into the one direction. What do you say? But remember, somebody's going to do it. There will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. Read those two wonderful articles by Elder Schuler in the recent reviews on the five R's. How many of you read them? Uh, read them. Read them. Oh, let's enter into God's program of repentance, revival, reformation, and the refreshing, and then we can share the return of Jesus. Those are the five R's he brings up. Read those articles in the review. Shall we bow our heads? Heavenly Father, we thank thee with all our hearts tonight for the prayer of Jesus. And we're so glad to know that the dear Savior thought of us personally down here in 1965. And oh Jesus, we thank thee that prayer is going to be answered. And we want to share with thee in the answer of that prayer. We want to enter into a unity with thee and thy church closer than we've ever known. We want to be separated from the world in all its evil, farther than we've ever been before. And then, Lord, we want this sense of mission to grip us. At every hour of our lives, every dollar in our pockets, every brain cell in our heads will be devoted to the one task of pulling souls out of the fire, getting people ready for heaven, and thus... May we share thy joy in eternal ages. Thus may we share it here and now, the great joy of soul winning, living for this and nothing else. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Who would like to say a word? If the arrow of God's word from the bow of his spirit has reached your heart, it's found its mark, there's something that God wants you to say in response, say it. The thing about this war on his days is like tithe paying. How's the way to pay tithe? Pay the tithe when? First. First. 
Did anybody here ever try to experiment with paying tithe after you got everything else paid? How did it work? Boy, it doesn't work. Oh, no, it just doesn't figure out right any way you figure it. But when you pay the tithe first, does the rest work out all right? Isn't that strange? Exactly the same amount of money. Doing it God's way will work. That's just the way this works for it. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and what? All, all these things shall be added unto you. But you try to get all these things first, and then tack on the soul winning. Bless your heart, friends. The devil will see to it that precious little time or money ever gets into soul winning. All these things is quite an order. But Jesus tacks it on extra for those that make his kingdom the big thing and the first thing. Am I right? Will every one of us eventually be tested all along? Yes. On every one of these? Yes. That's right. We'll be tested all along to see whether we're in union with Jesus and his church. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.